To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So this week on the podcast, I have on my new friend, Michael Chan. So Michael Chan is new to archery hunting mule deer. Uh, he hunted him a bit as a kid, took a break, and now has found it again and found a love for it. Uh, he has such a passion for improving his skill set and, and becoming proficient with a bow and arrow. And so he brings a great perspective. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Austin Bell that I called Elk Challenges. And Austin is new to elk hunting with a bow, and so he brought this perspective and asked these questions, you know, some things that I take for granted uh, and some things that I've just forgotten because I've been bow hunting so long. So uh, I, I, I did this podcast along those same lines with Michael, and Michael's a great guest. He's extremely intelligent has a passion for bow hunting mule deer and just asks these questions and we dive into these top topics. And, and like I say, it's just things that I've uh, forgotten over the years or Michael asked for clarifications on things he's heard in the podcast or uh, things he's heard about. And so we just have this great in-depth conversation all about bow hunting mule deer. So I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will enjoy it as well. Uh, bear with me on the intro of this episode. I got a couple things that I have to talk about, uh, some giveaways and things of that nature. Uh, so I want to thank Eberly Stock. Eberly Stock has been a great supporter of the podcast. Uh, they build super packs that pack the, rate, the weight well and, and are super durable. So you guys have probably heard me talk about the different packs that I like to use. Little Big Top for smaller trips, the Kite Pack for day trips. Uh, I use the the destroyer for um, long expedition trips. And then this year they came out with this new vapor series pack that I'm super excited about. So the vapor series pack goes on the mainframe, which the main frame will pack weight really well. Uh, the vapor series packs, they have three different sizes, a 2,500 cubic inch, 5,000 and 7,500. So those will all attach to this mainframe. They're ultra lightweight. They're a minimalist pack. You can also, they, you can cinch meat in between the frame and the pack, so it has a meat shelf in it, which I'm super excited about. Uh, so I haven't got my hands on one of these Vapor Series yet, uh, but I hear they're showing up, and I think this is going to be my new go-to pack. Uh, Everly Stock is also great about getting me some of these packs to give away. So I want to do some giveaways to you know, my guests I have on the podcast, but I also want to make sure to give some to you guys, the audience members. So... Um, I'll, I'll figure out how to do some of these giveaways. I think I'll do them through my social media and, you know, I'm not a big fan of, you know, tag this and follow this and do this to get a giveaway. So I'll make it fairly simple or easy to give those away so I can give a couple away to you guys. Uh, but I do have one today that, uh, I'm going to give away to Michael Chan. Uh, 
uh, I think he can can use this pack and uh, will really like it. And so I'm going to send one out to him. As soon as he gets it or uses it a few times, I'll give him a call and have him back on the podcast uh, so we can hear his review on it. But um, yeah, going to give him a, a brand new pack with a 5,000 cubic inch bag for it. And again, that's that new Vapor Series from Eberly Stock. And thanks to those guys for their continued support of the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. I also have a new sponsor on board I'm super excited about. So this is my friend Earl Stroll. Uh, he started this company, Cutter Stabilizers, a few years ago. So, you know, he's one of us. He's um, He's been working his full-time job. He's been doing this on the side. And he's been growing to this company to a point now where he's come on as a sponsorship for Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I'm so excited to have him. Like I say, good, hardworking guy. And I, I've worked with these stabilizers and helped them evolve this design. Of course, I am the hardest on any product. You give it to me, and uh, I'm going I'm to try to break it. But now he's evolved these stabilizers and made you know three or four different iterations or improvements, and, and now they're the most durable stabilizers on the market. He's really thought of everything here and trying to build a top-notch product. I've been using them for a few years, and and... Stabilizers, I was one of the first guys to start using a sidebar in a hunting setup. Well, maybe not one of the first guys, but it, it just wasn't popular or known back in the day. And so I took this from those tournament shooting guys that, you know, shooting these stabilizers, they just help so much with the hold and they also help to slow down the aiming. So, you know, all of a sudden the, the aiming isn't so big around where you want to hit. It tightens things up and makes the aiming small. So it just makes for a super forgiving setup. And not only do stabilizers help with the hold, they also help with the reaction of the bow. So, you know, if I'm getting, say I'm, I'm, I'm missing, and when I miss, I miss low on the target. Well, to get a better reaction out of that bow, I can stick more weight on my back sidebar or less weight out front and get a better reaction out of my bow and take some of those low hits out of the equations out of the equation. So um, they're just awesome for the whole reaction of the bow and, and cutter is building the best ones on the market. Um, so they have a, um, they, they build them out of carbon fiber, great connections to the weight and to the bow. So they're ultra lightweight, which puts the weight out on the end or away from your bow, which makes for a more stable aim. Um, so I'm using the, the 15 inch out front, like I say, I just kept making them a little bit bigger and they'd aim a little bit better. And so now I'm just stuck using that 15 out front and the 12 in the back and, and cutter also, they make their own sidebar brackets, they make their own weights, uh, and they make their own carbon fiber bars. Um, it's just a great company and I'm super excited to have Earl on as a partner. So you'll be hearing these, uh, advertisings throughout the year for cutter stabilizers. Uh, but yeah, they, they truly help. The other thing with those, um, carbon fiber is he's able to make them a real small diameter. And so they buck the wind better. Wind doesn't catch these bars as much. Uh, so, uh, they're just great bars. I'm super impressed. Been using them the last few years and it's really helped me harvest some of the big trophies that I, that I've been able to get in the past couple seasons. Um, they're just absolutely awesome. I believe in the company. So let's give some support to, um, cutter stabilizers. Okay. So a little bit of a long intro, but I just wanted to get that out there. Um, make sure to check out everything we have going on at Eastman's. 
And um, man, I got some good podcasts coming up, some good bear episodes as we're coming into spring bear season, and then just super excited for the fall. Uh, another year is upon us, and, and right now is the time to put in the work and improve our skill set and attack this season and achieve our goals. So, uh, man, I'll be putting in the work. I'm fired up, and um, I know you guys will too. So uh, thanks, as always, for support of the podcast. Uh, let's get rolling on this thing. So Michael Chan, uh, I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So I got uh, my new friend, Michael Chan, on the podcast today. So thanks, Michael. Appreciate you being on. Oh, Brian, I'm so excited. I'm such a huge fan. It's so cool to be able to talk with you today. <laughs> Man, well, yeah. <laughs> so true. we kind of connected through email. And um, so so you're kind of new to archery hunting and you've had some success. And I just thought you brought like such a great approach and, and great perspective to archery hunting and, and kind of being a newbie, you're able to, to ask these questions and, and it's it's fresh in your mind. Like me, I'm 20 years removed from being a new archery hunter, 25 years. And so like a lot of these skills I've forgotten or I forget to even mention to my, my new hunters, you know, my audience out there that are new, new hunters. So man, yeah, I just can't thank you enough. Maybe do a short introduction for my audience just to let them know who you are (laughs) and your background into hunting. Yeah, you bet. Thanks so much, Brian. And it's true that I first came across your material because I was desperate (laughs) to find good information on on archery mule deer hunting and just kind of the whole archery world in general. I I grew up in northern Arizona, uh, actually in Kingman. Uh, which is right there at the intersection of Route 66 and I-40, and just grew up hunting those hills with my dad, grandpa, uncles, brother, and uh, you know, grew up, loved it. Took a little bit of a break from hunting in um, kind of in my in my college years, and then picked it up in my early 30s. And uh, initially, when I picked it up, I was just doing the rifle, and you know, started with a javelina hunt here and there. It was a chance to to spend time with my dad and my brother, uh, but then I remember I remember the exact moment when I thought, "Oh my word, I'm an archery hunter, or I can I can do this." And I I do a lot of wildlife photography, and I remember I was out one morning, and I told my dad, "Hey, I, I just want to go photograph some mule deer. I want to try and figure this out." So I I took out my uh, you know my Nikon D500 with a 70 to 200 millimeter lens, which isn't a super telephoto, but it works out. And and he said, "Okay, go here, go here, and uh, you know get your binos out, and you'll look for them, and you'll probably find something." And I found this group of does, five does of maybe a fawn or two, and I thought, "Well, I'm probably." When I looked through the the lens, I thought I'm probably going to have to get within a hundred yards to be able to get any kind of reasonable photo. And so I had a couple uh, uh, washes between me and them, a couple hills between me and them. And so I kind of worked my way through the soft sand washes. The wind was to my advantage. I, I knew enough to know to you know feel for the wind, and and I got to about uh, six. I think it was about sixty yards. I didn't have a rangefinder, didn't need it, but I that's what it felt like. And and uh, was kind of tucked in behind a bush. And when those deer came out, I kind of slowly you know raised up, got all my shots off. You know, probably watched them for about five minutes. And in that moment, I realized, oh my word, I'm within bow range, and this is so amazing. And 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 that was the moment I thought I have got to do this all the time. 
And so I, uh, you know, went and picked up a bow from my from my good friends at, at Desert Archery, um, Clint Van Fleet. <clears throat> he uh, uh, has really helped me out a lot and in terms of getting all set up. And it's just been a wild ride from there, um, trying to learn this process, trying to get educated, because there really is uh, so much to learn. And it is, you know, quite a bit different, I think, than uh, hunting with the gun. Good for you. That's amazing. Sorry, that was long-winded, no, Brian. No worries at all. No, it's good to get a, a, a background, too, of where you started. And I think it's amazing that, that guys, you know, we, we kind of grow up hunting uh, with our families, or you did, and I did as well. Yeah. And I grew up hunting uh, a Blacktails and Roosevelts in the Pacific Northwest, where game populations are low. And I don't know if my family always had the right approach. We had a cabin that, that would sit up by this White Pass ski resort. Uh, you know, the hunting wasn't what it once was, but we continued to go to this cabin. And then, you know, we, we wouldn't do any driving around. Like my family or my dad would always push hunting hard. And he was uh, a young father. And so when I was growing up, he was in his 30s. And he went hard and he pushed his son hard. And so we would beat brush for 10, 12 hours a day. And, and you'd just hope to see a deer, jump a deer. But but he wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't drive around or we wouldn't glass clear cuts or we were in the brush all day, every day. And it did teach me some really good life lessons. But I think it it either hooks you or it doesn't. And my cousin went the opposite way where uh, so my dad and his dad are brothers. They hunted together. They both went really hard. So we had like the same introduction into hunting. And my cousin ended up, you know, hating it or not liking it uh, as much when he was a kid. And then the same as you, he, he kind of returned back to it. And now he's a firefighter. He's really into his physical fitness. And now he's been able to see the joys of being able to take on hunting and and bow hunting and he's found that passion kind of as a as an older guy and it sounds like that's kind of what you did like spending time with your family and it was great got some rifle experience but then all of a sudden trying to take these pictures of these muleys and stalking <laughs> in like it tapped into something it it tapped into something in your dna like it it spoke to you <laughs> like it was way. super exciting and thrilling and, and once you got into bow range and you got those photos you know you walked away with thinking like gosh i could do this with a bow and arrow and this would be so thrilling and and then for you to go deep down these rabbit holes of archery and bows and you talked talked about desert archery and um the guys helping you there there is so much information to gain and to learn and 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 you're almost starting from you know not quite square one but almost square one by by just trying to learn the basics of being able to have confidence to go out there and go find deer and and uh, uh, confidence in in also your your wood sense of keeping yourself safe out there and making good decisions like uh, what a great journey Michael. It has just been an incredible journey, and I have been you know I'm blessed to have family members that you know this is like four or five generations of hunting. And so I'm, I'm blessed to have a brother who has, who does archery hunting and, uh, has been extremely successful. Um, he, he, he's been, he didn't ever have the break, you know, that I took. And so like when it comes to sheep points, I'm you know, so far behind. Um, but, but, you know, there's a well of kind of experience to draw from my brother, from my dad, others you know friends and that makes all the difference like i think if if i had to offer advice to other people in my position who are brand new bow hunters it is 
um, just try to get connected with people who have had the experience because I think experience is everything. And especially if you can find people, you know, like yourself or like some of the family and friends that I have who take time to reflect on that experience. It's like, it's not enough just to have the experience, but to actually think about it and like, what does it mean that things went down this way or who are like really analytical in that way and can teach you that will cut years off of the process rather than doing like, you know, guys often try and do it, just sort of do it on their own. Um, that is the wrong way to do it. Like this is definitely a team sport, even when you are the only one in the field. <laughs> and it's such a, there's a whole team. Yeah, go ahead. Such a smart approach. Like um, just being able to use others' experiences and, and and being able to immerse yourself in the network of hunters. And I think a lot of it is just putting yourself out there. It's like tough for us guys and our ego to admit that we don't know everything or that we don't know how to hunt or that we're not proficient at it. But, you know, guys are willing to answer questions. They're they're willing to share their successes with you and share their experiences with you. And, and even just like I know when I was starting out, just hanging out at the bow shop, just making friends that like to to bow hunt or calling upon those mentors like your brother you know that that can really help guide you down that path michael i just think your approach is so spot on like immersing yourself um in the community of archery hunters well and social media of course makes this really uh, so much easier, I think, than, you know, guys like my dad who, you know, like his his resource for hunting was like his grandfather and, and his dad. But now these days we have the whole Internet. And I think the biggest obstacle to learning is really our ego. And that's one of the things I love most about archery is that it is just an ego slayer. Right? Like it <laughs> slays the ego all the time. And and I, I think the faster we can let that ego die the the quicker we're going to learn like every i think every person has had this experience where they walk into the archery shop and and like you know the guys are sitting there around the countertop and everybody looks at you as you walk in and you feel like that sense of oh man i if i ask my question i'm going to be like the dumb guy <laughs> or the dumb girl or whatever and uh it, we just have to get over that ego and just say boom this is my question this is where i'm actually at and that is the only way we're really going to make progress i think in this sport Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's spot on, like letting that ego drop. And that that goes for all of us. That goes for us experienced hunters, too. Like uh, letting that ego down and really trying to learn from people and learn from everybody out there. I think it's such a important piece to the puzzle. And I, I liked what you said, too. You have like a, such an analytical mind uh, being able to reflect upon hunting and what went right and what went wrong and why I think is such an important part of it like you can continuing continue doing the same thing over and over but if you never learn from it you just never get better or get over the hump uh, find that consistent success and so um, I, I, th I think that point that you mentioned is, is such a critical one for learning well I think part of what I appreciate about the the guests your for your podcast and the guests that you you tend to bring on is that they're pretty honest about their mistakes and like for a new guy like me i'm making all kinds of mistakes all the time and the real the real like gold is being able to find is to learn the right lessons from your mistakes because there are tons of wrong lessons that you can learn and then you you know kind of take that into the next scenario but as i've listened to the to the guys and you know hunters on your podcast 
it's trying to learn like what's the right lesson to learn from that stock I just blew or like what's the right lesson to learn from the what's going wrong with my shooting you know and people like you and and I listen a lot to to John Dudley's stuff on you know a knock on it's just invaluable information to help me learn what the right lessons are that I need to be learning from my mistakes that's interesting yeah um yeah like uh learning the right lesson like like bow hunting isn't black and white and you, you don't just like every mule deer you see is a different situation and a different scenario every stock you go on is a is a different stock like sure they have um uh, correlations and and tendencies and, and and things that tie them together that seem similar to, you know to other stocks that you can transpose those skill sets into other stocks but in the same breath like they're all different and it's not black and white and, and the decision-making isn't black and white. It's really gray of when you should make a stock on a mule deer, when you should try to close in, how fast should I go, how – like all of these uh, decisions you have to make, you have to kind of come up with on the fly and, and kind of rely upon your hunting instincts, which come from experience or come you know from the information day and age that we're in, a taking in information and trying to learn from it. But I, I think that's an important piece to it is taking the right lessons away and building ourselves – kind of a blueprint for success like what are we looking for what is a good situation what is a good scenario what is a bad situation what is a bad scenario and just being able to have that blueprint in our head and kind of know what we're looking for out there because I've I've found deer before in positions where I've just him and hawed and second guess myself and haven't made a play or I've seen him and I've been too aggressive and I've moved in and I've busted him because of the wind where I really should have been more methodical and and slowed down and let him get to a better position and so like I think just building that blueprint for success in our head is so important you know that way we can we can make those decisions without really second guessing back and forth we've got the blueprint down in our head does that make sense no, it does. And let me ask you a follow-up question about that because this that blueprint image is helpful to me. Like when you're when you're in a situation and you see a buck that you would like to harvest, what are some of the like top checklist items that are going through your mind of whether or not you can like whether or not it's a high probability stock? I think that's the language you sometimes use. What's what are some of those checklist items? Yeah, it you know, it's different for every stock, but I definitely look at the terrain. Is it is it opened or is it heavily timbered? You know, is the buck going to disappear from, from me? I mean, my biggest asset with mule deer is keeping my eyes on them, just keeping a, a visual on those deer. A- and then what I'm going to look at, you know, the first thing I'm going to look at is the wind. And, and the wind plays two important roles. The wind uh, blocks my scent, which is number one on any stock anywhere, is to get the wind right. And and then number two is the wind, it muffles my sound and muffles my approach. And so I really like a, a breeze when I'm stalking. I, you know, in, in a perfect world, like probably a five to 10 mile an hour breeze as it starts going to 20 or 30, then it's going to make it tough for me to execute a shot. And so like what I'm looking for when I see deer, the majority of times, um, you know, it's, it's how quick can I get to him? How far am I away from him? Uh, how quick can I close in now? Like my blueprint in my head is I like to stalk them when they're bedded. 
Um, you know, deer seem to bed in the open, and when they bed, they're, they're not moving from that location, and so I can stalk that location, and when I stalk that location, I can really slow down because I, I'm not trying to hurry up or get to a spot or cut off those mule deer, and so most of the time, I'm going to look to try to stalk them in their bed, which means watching them for the morning, but those mornings are really calm. It seems like the winds don't even pick up until early afternoon or late morning, they they start to pick up and get steadier where it's going to muffle a lot of my sound. So that works in my advantage waiting for him to bed and also waiting for those after afternoon winds to kind of muffle the sound. And it gives me like a more consistent wind. Um, if it's blowing 5 to 10, I can really get a good direction on it and a good way it's moving through the, that mountain to ensure that I'm not going to get winded moving in. So a lot of times I just sit and wait and I'm waiting for them to get bedded, and then I'm waiting for the winds to be up, and then I'm looking at the position that they do bed in. Uh, are there other deer that are going to be uh, in the way of my stock or that I'm going to bust first? Like, if I get to the spot I want to get to, can I shoot that buck? Or when he gets out of his bed, can I shoot him? And so, you know, I'm, I'm also looking for the terrain to kind of lend itself to my stock of how I'm going to approach. Uh, I love to use... Uh, Ungulation, topography, ridge lines to be on the backside of a ridge to keep all my sound over there, to keep my approach over there. Uh, I don't want to approach um, mule deer see movement really well. You know, uh, 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 ungulates see mu- movement really well, more so than the camera pattern or anything. And so, you know, I want my approach to be hidden by topography or be able to put trees in between me and those deer and, and work to them with, without fear of them catching my movement. Um, so, so just some of the things that I'm looking for when I'm looking for a uh, high prob- probability or a, a high percentage stock is you know, I'm looking for the the winds to be right, the winds to pick up. I'm looking for that deer to bed in a decent spot, and it. I usually don't have to spend you know multiple days with the deer until I get a chance. They if I can just keep my eyes on them and keep with them, they they tend to put themselves in a bad spot or a good spot for me throughout the day. And I know I have the morning bed and usually an afternoon bed. And this isn't a hard rule. Deer don't always bed in two different places. But in the majority of places that I hunt, they'll bed somewhere mid-morning or early morning. And this spot will usually be really good topography. They usually bed in the open because the sun's not that warm. And and so I can keep track of them. I know where they're at. But the morning stock, again, I don't have the winds in my favor. I don't, the winds aren't really up. And I know that deer's going to move. And so like I'll look at his morning bed. And if I'm within a half an hour of that spot and think I can get there and I have a decent wind, I'll go all in. But most of the time I'm going to wait and I'm just going to watch that deer and it's going to kill me because he's in a good spot, but I just don't have all those conditions in my favor yet. And I'll just wait. And then that buck will get up and then he'll feed his way, you know, usually mid morning and he'll feed his way and then he'll make his way into some deeper, darker cover. Usually whether that's a, a bigger group of trees or more timber 
But now I've got the winds in my favor a little bit better. The the mule deer is going to tend to stay in that deep, dark cover throughout the day. Uh, He's going to get up and feed every couple hours and just kind of feed around his spot. So if he's not bedding the perfect spot the first place he beds, I may opt to kind of wait and let him get up and move around. But um, I like to stalk in the afternoon. I like to stalk him in their beds. You know, unless the country like dictates something different to me, like if I don't know where that deer's bedded at his exact location, I don't go in because it's low percentage. I don't know where that deer is in trying to stalk a deer where I don't know where he is. I don't know where the others are. I end up blowing them a lot. And so I've learned that hard lesson. So if they disappear into deep, dark cover, you know, my plan may change. Okay, well, now this deer's in deep cover. I don't have a play through the day. Where do I think he's going to come out tonight? Where do I think he's going to feed at? And then try to put myself in striking position to that spot. And when he feeds out, then try to use the ungulation and contours to kind of move in. So like I say, it's it's never a black and white, and it's a gray area where I really rely upon my instincts. But those are some of the things that I'm looking for. That, that's such a great breakdown, Brian. I really appreciate that. But it also kind of reinforces within me the the, the patience part. Like that, could, that whole process you just took me through could have been one day, like a full day of hunting where, you know, you, you, you find your buck maybe in the morning, you wait on it for that first bed, it gets up, you find it in a second bed, maybe you can't get to it, so you wait till the evening. That's a really patient process. And, and it's part of what I love about this bow hunting so much is that it just it forces you into that place of patience. And I am so impatient in part because I'm afraid to lose the deer, right? <laughs> or I'm afraid to lose the animal. So I'm always kind of fighting that fear of loss, you know, because that drives you into like an anxious sort of position. And I think it weakens, probably weakens us. And, and so I just love the way that you, you know, you kind of push the patient element there. And I think that's just really one of the hardest lessons, at least for me to learn about bow hunting is how to be patient and put yourself in the best possible position. Yeah, it's good self-evaluation too, Michael, when you look at yourself and I'm the same way where, um, you know, patience isn't my strong suit. It's something I've had to really work on. And I like what you said about that anxiety of losing the deer, losing the opportunity, losing the stock. It's like when you spot a deer, you you have them. You got a stock for the day. It's exciting. You have a chance to harvest this deer. You just want to go. Yeah, you want to send it. Yeah, you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you 100%. But it seems like the more I hunt and the more I sit back and just watch this scenario develop, like the better chance I give myself. And and some of the confidence that I bring to being so patient is that, you know, I feel like I can find that deer again. I feel like if I don't bust them, I don't give that deer my wind, like I will find them again tomorrow morning. So if that evening stock, all of a sudden the winds aren't right, the toughest thing to do is to not stock. <laughs> the toughest thing to do is to back, back out, out on a stock, <laughs> is to say, no, this yeah. isn't right. That is the toughest thing to do. But when I do that and I back out and I grab that vantage point the next morning, here there's that buck feeding on the same feature or feeding one bump over or feeding, you know, so I just know that I can find this deer again. And, and and so my challenge is trying to make that high percentage play where I really give myself a good chance at killing that buck because um, very rarely, like sometimes I'll get multiple stocks on a deer, but usually you get one chance. And then after you blow that deer, bust that deer, I mean, not always, but then, you know, he can be gone or gone forever. And so I want to make that one chance count. And so, yeah, I am pretty patient and methodical and strategic at how I want to make that approach. And, and, um, 
yeah, that that is kind of the, the the approach I take to it. Gosh, I wonder, Brian, do you think about that process differently during the rut? I know you, you talk about like into hunt uh, those some of the eastern Montana uh, a, a deer, a, you know, mule deer during the rut. I think it's also during gun season as well. So because they seem to be you know moving around a lot more, they're kind of locked on to finding those does. Do you think about that process differently? I do. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely more aggressive during the rut um you know there's the the deer are just moving around a lot and um you know that buck there's there's no guarantee that that buck is going to be there the next day he's traveling country or traveling through and so yeah I, I tend to push it a little bit more during the rut and i'm more aggressive um you know i'm still looking for kind of those the the same conditions you know and and, and on this last rut hunt that i had like down in the desert um, you know, I was able to, it was open terrain. And so even though this buck would be rutting does, eventually they would bed down in a spot or they would stop moving. That would give me a good chance to work in and not try to force it. But yeah, I am, I am a touch more aggressive when I hunt rutting mule deer. Like you, you talk about Eastern Montana. Yeah. It's like I, I find a buck and he'll be with a group of does and I almost just want to start closing in. I almost hunt them like, uh, like, like elk. And an elk, so you can't hunt an elk. Let's, let me let me rephrase this. So uh, the majority of elk stocks that you make are aggressive elk stocks because elk are always moving. And when they bed down, they bed down in the thick cover where you don't have a chance at them. And the deal with elk is you make the best laid plans to go move in on elk. But they're always moving. When you get there, the stock has changed. And so basically, you just got to find elk and then you got to close in on them and just start closing in and relying upon my instincts. And so the same thing with a rutting buck. He's rutting these does around and he's moving so much that by the time I make this methodical planned out play that I'm going to stalk into bow range and to this rock and I'm going to get a shot, it doesn't work out because by the time I get to that rock, everything's changed. He's chased that doe around two, three, four hundred yards and she's bedded once and got up and chased her around. And so the stock's like always changing during the rut. And so what I tend to do during the rut is I tend to get the conditions right, which I keep my eyes on the deer, and I want to get that wind or get those those afternoon winds where I've got a little bit to muffle my noise. I know I'm not going to get winded, but then I just go all in, and I just close into where those deer are at, and, and you have to be really good at knowing when to slow down whenever you're coming over a ridge, whenever you're exposing new country, because you don't know exactly where they are. You've lost sight of them getting on the stock or getting over to that spot. But what I try to do is just try to get over and put myself into them. Like I just try to get close, not let them know I'm there. I want to keep the element of surprise. And then I kind of adjust my stock to the conditions that I'm given. So I close into 400 and I then I see the buck and he's chasing a doe and okay, they're right here. I can circle around this hump and I think I can put myself into bow range. And then I, I circle around the hump and I get over there and maybe I'm not in bow range. Now they're down below me. Now I'm going to adapt the stock again and go, okay, I, I don't have a move right now. I'm in the wide open. If I make a move, they're going to see me. I'm just going to hold tight here until they go over that next ridge. And then I'm going to go to that next ridge. And so like, um, Definitely during the rut when they're always moving, I get aggressive and then I rely upon my instincts and I adapt my stock to the current conditions wherever I'm at, whatever I'm dealing with, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and it's just based on what I've heard you say in the past, it sounds like you're really mostly concerned with your own movement and, and being picked up in that. I mean, of course, the wind as well, but you think that movement is a much more uh, a dangerous issue than like camo patterns or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they see movement and, um, you know, you, you've heard the old adage, uh, you know, you can't fool their uh, nose. You, you know, you can feel the fool their eyes you can fool their ears but you can't fool their nose and that's totally right when a deer wins you he doesn't stand around to look at what made that noise or what uh, caused that noise he is just out of there he just blows so with sight mule deer pick up uh, movement really well and so i want to keep the element of surprise they really see movement and so like a lot of the mistakes i make i see guys make is like um the final move on mule deer they'll draw their bow and try to walk out from the edge of the bush well you'd be better off to try to creep out on the edge of the bush as slow as you can and not catch their movement get your bow up as slow as you can and then draw really slow like you're gonna get away with more keep the element of surprise and execute a good shot rather than drawing your bow behind the bush and walking over i see a lot of guys draw their bow and then try to walk over the ledge of a cliff and so you've got this huge human skyline and all this movement coming over top of those mule deer they do not put up with that they'll blow out of there and and so you can fool their eyes but they pick up movement. So if they see you move, they really key on to your position. They'll key on to you. All the deer with them will key on to you. And so you can really read the mannerisms of these deer. You can read their emotion and and, and kind of, not their emotion, but their danger level and kind of what their mood is. Are they just feeding or are they looking up alert? And so like um, if they catch you moving, you can freeze. And you might have to freeze. I mean, you... You think I have a lot of patience, and mule deer has me tenfold. Like, they will stare at your position. They will burn a hole in your position at where you're at. But a lot of times, if I just stay still for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, a lot of times they'll forget where I'm at. And the same thing goes for sound. Mule deer are are real sensitive to sound. So if they hear something unnatural or a rock move or something slide, they'll look or they'll listen in that direction and they'll point their ears in that direction and they'll just sit there for 10 minutes, 15 minutes and just listen in that direction. If they hear anything else, they'll bust. Or if they see anything coming from there, they'll bust. And so like definitely uh, uh, sound um, and sight are, are an, another two gr- big elements on the stock that I'm always paying attention to. And, and if I make a loud noise, a lot of times, even if I can't see the deer and I'm blind to him, I'll just sit there for 10 minutes or so and just let everything calm down and let them go back to being deer. And same thing when I come over the hill, sometimes a doe will see me or something will pick up my movement and I'll just have to stay there frozen. And sometimes it's a minute sometimes it's 15 minutes sometimes i don't move for an hour you know i just get really pinned down in that position so definitely have to have the wind right you can get away with a little bit of noise and a little bit of movement but boy then if they catch that movement they look in your direction and then see you move and that can be they can see you behind a tree just moving you know that movement in between the branches of looking by that can alert them to your presence and so if they're looking your way and you continue to move the game's over with they got you pinned and they'll blow out of there but if they just catch a little bit of movement and you go totally still 
you'd be surprised with how many times they just forget about you because deer are constantly looking for danger. Like that's their number one job. And, and so they get a lot of false positives too. So they hear sounds, whether that's a rabbit or a coyote or another deer. So they hear these sounds like that's natural to them. So to hear a sound and then not hear anything for a little bit, they just think, oh, that was nothing. And they go back to being deer. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for on the stock or what I'm trying to accomplish. It is remarkable how aware they are and their ability to just take in their environment to kind of prioritize threats. I mean, there's there's a reason why, you know, animals like mule deer or especially antelope, right, are so long lived, right? Their species has survived for such a long time. You know, when I think about that awareness piece, I... uh, I live in Minnesota now, and so like my immediate hunting area is whitetail country, and I have found that hunting those whitetail, I think it's making me a better Western bow hunter, in part because I think they're, they strike me as more um, skittish and sensitive to disruptions in their environment than mule deer are. Um, and uh, maybe part of that is because they're, they tend to live in kind of more confined areas. So they're just hyper aware of what things should look like, smell like, feel like, and all of that. But, but I feel like just being around animals like that and having to hunt them really makes me more like cautious about things like noise and wind. Like I, I was, uh, when I, my first white tail, um, hunt was this last fall and I've, I'm only allowed to hunt uh, does on this particular property. And there's a pretty good population of does. And I thought, well, I can't hunt the bucks, but I'm going to make this doe hunt into a trophy hunt. And so I, you know, I scouted the biggest doe that I could find. And I thought, I'm going to kill that doe. You know, and I kind of knew where she operated. And uh, I mean, she busted me so many times. Um, I, had, I tried hunting her first out of a, a tree saddle, which I love. I use like a tethered tree saddle and they're just fantastic for mobile hunting um i built a ground blind like a natural ground blind and she picked that ground blind out not even the movement um uh, but I, I don't think at least but just there was something off about it blew her out eventually killed her out of like a you know sort of a pre-manufactured blind one of the tent tent type ones but i just gained so much respect for their awareness and their ability to pick things out in their environment that just aren't right and then to respond in ways that will ensure their survival and i just kind of feel like hunting these white tails has given me a better appreciation for kind of all animals ability to do that oh absolutely yeah those those white tails are switched on like uh uh i have a lot of respect for white tails they're a really tough species to hunt and um you know I, i've been out to the midwest and hunted them hunted them i've also hunted them here in montana quite a bit like uh i hunt white tail does we can get five over the counter white tail doe tags so if i ever have a year that i don't kill an elk or something happens there i can always fill my freezer by hunting these white tail right. does but they're good filler meat yeah yeah but <laughs> You're right in that, you know, experience is the best teacher and getting this experience, these close encounters with these deer. Yeah, we get to learn like uh, what they pay attention to and what they don't. And so like uh, our whitetails here are really condensed in river bottoms in in Montana. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I'm actually able to go on a couple pieces and spot and stock whitetail does and it makes – my spot and stock game so much better because they are so aware of their surroundings. They're, they're so switched on. 
And um, yeah, I, I know it makes me better. And, and I think that's it. It's just that, that experience and the more experience we can get every season, it improves our skill set and gives us a better chance at when we do find that big muley buck at closing the deal on them. And I'm with you. Those, those whitetails are really keyed into their environments and their senses are so spot on. They just don't put up with uh, much disturbance, you know, in their immediate area. Like they, they just pick up on that danger and then they're just gone. And um, so, so I think, um, I, I, I think you're spot on at learning from these, this experience and hunting those whitetails is making you a way better muley hunter, you know? Well, and I think it also just from like a methods perspective, it kind of opens your eyes up to different ways to hunting Western big game. Because I think if a couple of years ago, if I had thought about using like a ground blind or a tree stand in a Western hunting scenario, I would have said, that's just not how you hunt Western animals. But like in Arizona, where we're currently going through like tremendous drought, um, and, and, you know, it's hard on the animals and they have to, they rely so much on those water sources, tree stand hunting, ground blind hunting can really be effective. And especially if you're doing kind of these early hunts, you know, deer hunts in August or whatnot, you know, the sitting water is a fantastic way to kill a deer or, or in some cases an elk sort of depending on the, the time of year and the water resources. And so I feel like just hunting across the U S and doing these different methods can make you a, a better hunter all around, if only because it kind of broadens your horizon of methods available to you. It's a good point is playing into the animal's weakness instead of their strength. And um, I'm I'm a little bullheaded there. Like, I just don't like I think it's really <laughs> good to think outside the box and play into these animals weakness. And I think it can be highly successful. And I think a guy should utilize that. I just have committed myself or convinced myself to this spot and stock game that I told myself early on. If I could spot and stock animals and get proficient at it, I could kill any animal out west during any season. You know, I wouldn't have to rely mm -hmm. upon calls for elk or catching them in the right rut. And so, like, I, I've really, you know, and it's almost a stubbornness in a way. But through that stubbornness, it's made me really good at spotting and stalking to where now that gives me the highest percentage, uh, the highest chance or probability at success. But I haven't been so good at thinking outside the box. And so I think you bring up a really good point. Uh, like I've seen elk spots before way back in the wilderness, and I've seen these trails or these elk do the same thing where I've thought about putting in a tree stand there, packing in a tree stand. And, and again, it's that patience of being able to sit up there. But when you do get an opportunity, opportunity sitting on water or from a tree stand it's not going to be you know a 50 yard shot from your knees on a downhill angle when he freezes right in an opening <laughs> you're usually setting yourself up for a really good shot the animal doesn't know you're there and not that it's a slam dunk it never is with archery but you get this high percentage shot that's going to be a closer shot the the animal doesn't know you're there you can sit and execute your shot and so like I, I think that's really smart to take those approaches out west and i see some of my buddies do it as well like with antelope i'm constantly trying to spot mm. and stalk these things in the open and i fail a ton and and then i'll see my buddies that'll are really smart with their approach which they'll sit on water and they'll sit in their blind and they'll sit day on 
day in, day out, and they don't get a lot of opportunities. But when that buck does come in, they get a 20-yard broadside. They pinwheel them, and they've got a nice pronghorn. Or they'll set up on fence crossings. These antelope, they don't jump fences real well. So they look at places they can go under the fence. And so my buddies will walk miles of fence line to find these places where they cross and where the trails go under. And then they'll set their blind up there and wait for them. And they're really playing into an antelope's weakness instead of their strength, where I'm playing into the antelope's strength, which luckily for me, there's enough of them where I can make some mistakes and then get it right and end up closing a deal. But I just think thinking outside the box like you're talking about and whether that's sitting water, whether that's sitting tree stand on a trail or whatever it is, I think it's good to have those tactics in your toolbox. And when you go out west for one week hunt, you want to give yourself the best chance of success. And sometimes it's spot and stock, but a lot of times it's, you know, once you find a water source they're hitting is sitting on that water source, not blowing all those deer out of there and letting them come down to that water and getting that high percentage play on them. So I think that's really smart, Michael. Have you implemented that in your mule deer hunting? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Actually, the so the mule deer that I killed in Arizona this year, that one with the you know the big forky um, that I killed, I was actually sitting on a water source that a friend uh, had pointed out to me, and uh, he was kind enough to he had the blind set up as well, and you know he had seen this, these deer coming in, and so I sat that water sat in the morning, and then I was going to spot stock the um, uh, about uh, ten in the afternoon, spot and stock through the afternoon, and then maybe set the water again in the evening, and nothing came in, just quail so i got a lot of great you know photos of quail but then i i stepped out of the blind um i was getting ready to go do some spot and stock and there was a there was a uh a, a, that mule deer was on like a doe trail or like a, a trail of deer just hot locked on it and so i i was able to shoot that deer after sitting the bl- it never came in for water i didn't even know it was there it was in kind of a blind spot uh, i couldn't see around the blind but it was uh, there were sort of some, you know, bushes in between me and him, and so after I got out of that, uh, out of that blind, I was able to uh, to shoot that, <laughs> to shoot that buck. So I've I've used it in in that mule deer setting. The blind didn't help me kill it, but uh, you know I was in proximity to the water. I did kill a coos deer um, in uh, uh, August of last year on water, and that was just a um, a ground blind that that we built. Uh, we knew that there were, were deer coming in there. So there was a ground blind we built, and uh, it came into about 35 yards. And, I mean, this was a small deer. This was my first archery hunt ever, and I just told myself, the first legal deer that walks in front of me, I'm going to try and shoot it because I, I, just, I just need the experience, you know, to build the confidence. I need the times at bat. And and so yeah, we killed that one off of a off of a ground blind in, in August when it was when it was pretty warm. So they were hitting the water pretty good. Yeah, good deal. Um, and good on you for like that that uh, approach to bow hunting. Uh, uh, it seems like there's so much pressure and social media pressure for big animals, and, um, and and we all have to start somewhere and work our way up the rungs of that trophy ladder. And you you need at bats, like you stated. You need chances, and and really, that's the fun of hunting is when you know you're going to shoot, no matter how big that animal is. 
or those at bats like that's what's really thrilling about bow hunting is trying to make something happen so i i think that's really cool that you've started out the right ways of the first legal deer that comes in i'm i'm gonna shoot you know <laughs> i uh i i just think that's such a great approach to beginner archery is to get those at bats under your belt and i know like i've seen buddies make the mistake and and i've probably been guilty of it as well is um Sometimes that rifle experience, you've shot a a four-point buck with a rifle, but now all of a sudden with a bow, you know, you're shooting for a 170-inch buck or a big, mature four-point buck before you get those at-bats underneath you, before you get those chances underneath you. So you finally get a chance at your target buck, but you just haven't shot at animals or been in bow range that much, much that when you do get that opportunity, you end up messing it up. You know, and so I think it's important to get those bat at bats, get some success under your belt, build your confidence, build your proficiency. And then when you do see that trophy buck, you know, you you've got a, a real good chance at killing them. No, that's that is precisely the perspective, Brian, that I'm at least trying to think about is that I think there will you know, there will come a time when I get a chance to, to kill some real trophies. But I just want there to be like 20 other shots you know 50 other shots behind that that allow me to make that shot really ethically uh, really effectively on that that trophy deer of a lifetime and i just know i don't think this is true of everybody but for me i have to have those times at bat with almost any activity like i used to be terrified of 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 public speaking terrified of it and now it's what it's what i do as for a living right i'm a professor so i'm in front of people talking all the time and the only thing that really helped me get beyond that was just doing it over and over and over again, making all the mistakes, messing up all the, all the times so that, but it was like a year, years in the process. And I've just kind of taken that philosophy into deer hunting that look like I just need to get out there and make my mistakes over and over again and get this kind of stuff out of my system. And there are things to do, you know, like to deal with target panic, which I definitely have, but in improving on. But part of it is just times at bat, opportunities to to take the shots and make the shots and just slowly, slowly build up that level of confidence so that when that opportunity of a lifetime comes, I can, you know, more effectively execute on it. Such a great approach. And I, you know, I'm in a similar journey, like just, um, you know, it's, it's like the, the better I can make my proficiency, the, the higher I can set my goals. And so, you know, that's Mm. it for me is every year I kind of set my goals per hunt, you know, and, and I, I try to base it in reality as well. You know, I, you you can't kill a 400 inch bull if he doesn't exist in that unit, or you need to be (laughs) realistic with, with your expectations. So I've definitely found that. So I try to like set a goal of an animal that I'm going to be happy with, you know, and, and, and just building that proficiency, the, the, the better I get and the more times I execute successfully and that's on my on my stock on my shot on my decision making like the better I get and the better I build my skill set like the higher I can set these goals because I don't need as many opportunities to get it done because I know that that I'm gonna make right on my stock I'm gonna make the right decisions and I know when I get the chance I can execute that shot because I've done it time and time again so I'm in the same process Michael of of building my proficiency you know now to where the point like this 2021 season my goals are gonna be pretty high what's the goal I'm really proficient at, at, at harvesting these animals 
animals. And so like now, you know, I can set my sights for one of these hunts for a a 200 inch deer. And if I don't harvest them, that's fine. But I'm going to give myself 10 days of giving everything I have to try to kill this next level buck and knowing that if I can give myself an opportunity, you know, I've got a good chance to make it happen. And so I'm I'm in a similar journey at just trying to build that proficiency. And I think we all are uh, just trying to, uh, you know, and you don't want to jump the rungs of those ladders too quick or otherwise you get that chance at that trophy animal and end up messing it up. And you know, bow hunting's made up of a lot of failures. Like that's the way we started this conversation. Uh, I think I've failed every different way you can fail on a stock, on a shot. I've messed up easy shots. Like I've made major mistakes, but again, it's like learning from those and getting better to where when all the pressure's on, you make the right moves and execute the right shot. And there's a hundred decisions that have to go your way on this chance at this deer. You have a hundred things that you have to make the right decision on all of them along the way, but you can't think through all these decisions. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're almost subconscious. Like they're just built into your, your hunting instincts, which is built from your experiences, which is built from learning from those experiences. And then you just rely upon those instincts to kind of direct you on the stalker in the woods, the moves to make. But yeah, I think we're all on a similar journey like that, but I, I definitely think you've started off the right way, taking up archery, uh, not trying to jump those rungs too quick. Mm. You had mentioned antelope earlier. I, I feel like antelope is just one of the best. Like, I don't want to say it's. I don't want to say it's like a training hunt, but it's 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 one of the best animals to learn um, a, about spot and stalking animals. You know, with with a bow because uh, like there are often so many opportunities that you're given. I had a chance to do archery antelope last year in Wyoming, and and I mean you know the the populations of antelope there are so high that that you can legitimately get six, seven, eight stocks a day, you know, and if you're not too picky about the size of the buck that you want to shoot, and it's just, you're just, you're just getting an education is what you're getting, (laughs) an an education in how to spot and stock. And so I just feel like the antelope for me is such an important animal to be hunting because I just learn so much. They see so well. The country's often, you know, very flat and difficult to stock. And so the more, the more, uh, you know, st- uh, hunting I can do with antelope, I think the better archer I'm probably going to become. Oh, you're spot on. I'm so glad that you've taken advantage of those uh, antelope and those archery seasons for antelope. Man, oh man, like you say, the the experience level alone or the, the lessons that they teach you, but also there's not much out there that's more fun than hunting antelope like that is thrilling hunting because you do you you know so much of hunting you spend looking for animals but so much of antelope hunting is stalking those animals and so you're just immersed in the stock and in the hunt the whole entire time and so i all day all day (laughs) man yeah so i walk away from those hunts the same way as like man those are some of the funnest hunts i do every year and they're also some of the best hunts for me, like you say, improving my skill set, letting me know what I can get away with, what I can't. And they're really challenging. Like they're, they're, you know, if you can spot and stalk an antelope, you can spot and stalk an elk, a mule deer, anything out there. Like they're, they're really tough to get close to. The only saving grace is that you do get a lot of chances, a lot of opportunities. And so, you know, eventually you can get things in your favor um, and, and make something happen. But there's so many lessons there. Like I think one of the biggest lessons on antelope too 
is when to stock or when not to stock. Like being able to spot a nice buck and go, you know, I don't have much of a chance at that buck. Like uh, I'm going to go look for another one or I'm going to wait for him to get to a better spot because I can already see that this this stock has failed from the very beginning. And so like it's helped me try to it's helped me recognize like what is a good stock and what isn't. But man, I absolutely love antelope and one of the funnest hunts of the year. So I'm glad you took advantage of it in Wyoming last year. Uh, I bet you got a, a boatload of stocks on those things. Yeah, I, there are a couple OTC opportunities, you know, like in uh, Nebraska and Colorado. So I'll try and do this. I don't think I'll be able to draw Wyoming again this year, but hopefully take advantage of those on, on the archery side. And, you know, my antelope is my wife's favorite uh, table fair. And so I told her, I was like, oh, I want to go do two or three mule deer hunts this coming fall. She was like, why do you want to do that? I hate how they taste. Go shoot some antelope <laughs> or an elk. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that antelope will spoil them. It's such good meat. Uh, you know, I love mule deer meat as yeah. well, or my family does. But, yeah, uh, antelope is definitely our favorite as well. Well, don't don't overlook the possibilities in Montana, too. We have a statewide archery tag that's really easy to draw, and we have populations like Wyoming. There's antelope running everywhere out here. So don't overlook that opportunity as well. It's a great one. And, and like I say, one of my favorite hunts every year and antelope are just so good at at picking you up like um you know we talked about a white tail senses and a, a mule deer uh antelope are so good at picking me off like um it seems like you just think about looking over a hill and they see you or i can be laying flat in the grass and they pick you out their eyesight is so good and, and an antelope you know, they get kind of a, a rap for rifle hunting, like of not being that difficult of a uh, an animal to harvest. But I, you take a bow and arrow and go try to crawl up on one of those things. They're one of the most challenging animals out west to harvest with a bow. I just have so much respect for them and so much fun chasing those things around. So, yeah, I, I don't think you'd be more spot on like trying to build skills for archery. Antelope is just a great one to take advantage of. And you'll just have so much fun. And relatively, you know, easy to either draw or just buy one over the counter, depending on what, you know, what state you're hunting in. So that's just sort of the other advantage is that the bow gives you a lot of chances to hunt them. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, they're one, too, that um, you thinking outside the box is advantageous, you know, like uh, playing into an antelope's weakness. Um, I always play into their strengths and I'm always trying to stalk them, but also a lot of spot and stock success. Uh, has to do with the terrain and the topography that's that's within it. Like I remember hunting coos deer a couple years ago, and I had this really good spot that was dynamite, and the coos bucks were rutting like crazy. I was seeing five to ten bucks a day. I was getting stocks every day. My buddy was getting stocks every day, but it was like this real rolling broad hills, and uh, uh, the grass hadn't been eaten down by the cattle, so the grass was really tall and really noisy. And we hunted there for five days. I couldn't leave that spot because it was so good and so many bucks. But in the end, I don't think we ever made it into bow range of a deer in that spot just because the, the topography in the country didn't lend itself to, to being able to get close to them. And so we were, you know, kind of chasing our tail in this spot 
couldn't find success and finally we were just so frustrated we said we just got to go find deer somewhere else we got to go find a different spot and and so we moved areas and you know we started over in this new topography in this new country but instantly when we started finding deer all of a sudden you know my buddy dan got a shot at one Uh, we had another close call on another one i ended up killing one like just by changing country so like for five days we had hit our head against a wall and could not figure out how to kill these deer and we jumped 30 miles or 20 miles whatever it is to a different spot with better topography and instantly we're loosing arrows and we killed a deer and so like like a lot of times you know thinking outside the box or like I think you have to know when to quit an area too or when it's like not working and be able to find something else or some different way to go about it And, and that that was the case on that hunt for sure so the the it was just too open in that first area to be able to get with i mean they're skittish too i understand um oh super you know difficult to spot and stalk oh yeah they're so tough to spot and stalk yeah uh well they're your white-tailed deer species but they seem like they're a white tail that that's on crack or that's really that's really high alert yeah they're um they're they're one of the tougher animals i've hunted they're really good small super keen um, so yeah, really tough to get close to. And yeah, the place that I was, I don't mind open terrain, but the place I was hunting, they were like r- these really, uh, rolling hills. And so, you know, there was no, you know, you were kind of stuck out in the open in the end of your stock, but just these rolling hills. And then the grass was so high that the noise that we were making, trying to get close, we couldn't be quiet in it to where, when we jumped areas, you know, the cows had eaten down a lot of the grass. It was quieter stalking, but it was tighter country. Like the coolies, the canyons, the ravines were just tighter together. So when you approached a, a ridgeline and came over that ridgeline, that deer was 50 yards, where in the spot that didn't work, you'd come over and the first spot you'd see the deer would be 250 yards that you had of open terrain that you were trying to close in and you couldn't really hide your sound. And so they were just kind of open rolling hills and it, it just, uh, it wasn't working for us um and not that we couldn't have killed a deer there you know we definitely could have caught one in the right spot but it was during the rut the coups were moving a ton and we just could not get it right in that terrain or in that topography and and i couldn't quit it but finally after five days i just had to we just we weren't getting any shots we weren't getting close and in just one little move and even into less deer numbers but still decent coos deer and and able to make it happen just with better topography um so it's you know again it's not like a hard rule that you can live by or anything but you know good topography makes for good bow hunting and that's that definitely i guess my point is for antelope like in my home valley here it's really flat there's not that much topography when you find an antelope a play can be really tricky or i can drive 30 miles over the hill and i go hunt in this really tight topography with all these canyons and coolies and that's where I tend to get it done every year. So, like, I tend to avoid the big flat topography, even though there's antelope there. And I'll go hunt the tighter ridge lines and coolies and canyons because it's like better bow hunting terrain, and I have a better chance of success over there. I guess is the point that I that I'm trying to make. That it's such a it's such a great point because I when I think back on that antelope hunt and then other ones that I've done with a gun like the the hardest ones are really where it's just flat open country 
you know, and, and uh, any sort of wariness that they might have, it seems like they're probably going to bust out. Or you just you, it seems like you reduce your chances, especially in an archery scenario, uh, if it's just flat and there's no topography or nothing really to nothing really to work with. And so I, I think that's a really good point. It seems like it would increase your chances when you get into into better topography. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's that's something that I always try to remember with antelope, just stalking them in the right places and uh, tends to up my odds at, at being able to get close to them. But um, man, well, you're, you're on an awesome archery journey. Like what a great conversation and great perspective you bring. And I know you're all in on archery. So um, I, we're just in the drawing process now, but big plans for this year, I imagine, huh? Oh yeah, big plans. Um, actually, really uh, got start. Twenty twenty one got started really well. I went down to Arizona and did a little bit of lion hunting um, with uh, 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 with uh, with the guys at uh, Mossback in northern Arizona. I do a little bit of digital um, uh, digital marketing work for them and get to hunt with them every once in a while. So we uh, we did some lion hunting there uh, in the Kaibab National Forest with the bow. That was great. And then went down to Kingman and did some uh, javelina hunting. And then that's also when we got the mule deer shot as well. So 2021 starting out great. And then, you know, we're in drawing season. So I've got my Arizona application in. What is it? The night today is when it's due, but I've got, got that in. Hopefully get, uh, get, uh, get an elk tag. And then uh, my brother and I are looking at doing some hunting in New Mexico. We'll see. That's a difficult draw. Uh, but then otherwise, I'll be kind of focusing on uh, Wyoming, maybe some eastern Montana, uh, spring black bear, and um, oh, there's one other thing in there that I'm forgetting. Oh, I'll probably try and do a, an archery antelope hunt either in Nebraska or Colorado. So it should be a pretty pretty full season. Oh, I'd say. Uh, good on you going out for spring bear. We talked about that a little bit before we started the podcast. But yeah, you'll have fun doing that. That spring's just a great time of year to be out. And, and bears are so fun. They're just... Like, they're so different from hunting deer and elk. And it is... Like, for us archery hunters... You know, it's our introduction into dangerous game. Like uh, black bears have teeth and claws, and it's hunting a predator. And and of course, you know, you got that introduction. Uh, mountain lions. Congratulations on that mountain lion, by the way. It had to just um, that kaibab had to be fun to go spend time in and uh, chase those things around. That um, that. That yeah. lion hunting oh, is way sorry. different than anything. I, I've actually never been on mm. a lion hunt, but it's something I really want to do. So you guys probably use dogs on that hunt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we use dogs. And there are the, you know, the dogs and the houndsmen are just the real heroes of those hunts. It is incredible to watch those dogs operate. And uh, we had some fresh snow the first day of the hunt. So I guess that helps in terms of identifying the tracks. It was my, my first hunt as well, but it was, I have to admit, Brian, it was, it was really tough because they, they treed that cat in a, in a Canyon. And we just had probably like, I don't know, maybe five, six inches of fresh snow. And it was a very, very steep Canyon. And so I was just slipping and falling all over the place, trying to keep up with the dogs. And so the cat actually jumped two trees before we finally uh, got it in a position where I could, could shoot at it. And I just had a hard time keeping up. Like it was really difficult and I'm in, you know, I run, I'm in pretty good shape, but you know, there's an L there's like a 
6,000 foot elevation difference and then just trying to keep up in those canyons was was really difficult but but you someone like you uh could definitely you know handle that a little bit better than i could but man it is just such a chase and those dogs are really the heroes of those hunts oh what a cool challenge uh uh, what a cool takeaway from that hunt too uh like just just running those canyons like a wild man trying to keep up with those dogs and um exhausted and um it just seems like a really fun adventure and um most of those a lot of those hunts like down where you did it you, you don't always have snow some of those can be like dry dirt tracking hunts which are a lot tougher right that's what I understand. Um, you know, the the houndsman that I had worked with had told me that uh, that he actually prefers, I guess, those um, uh, prefers the the dry hunts as opposed to the snow ones. I'm not, I wasn't quite sure on the reasoning, but this is a guy who's been doing this for years, and so I kind of trust his thinking there. But I think because sort of the conventional wisdom is that the snow just helps with seeing the tracks a little bit better yeah it just seems like an adventure like up here north when they go on these hunts it seems like you turn the dogs loose and then there's no telling where you may end up and just like you talked about trying to keep up with those things in the canyons and uh those snowy steep hillsides i think these guys get the same thing deep snow uh the dogs disappear and you can be after them for the entire day or the entire next day to catch up with your dogs and to catch up with this cat and so it just seems like a really good wintertime adventure and and i think it's i I think it's like the um you know the only way to hunt these cats although i have talked to a guy that used to track down these cats on foot that he'd take his bow and arrow and he'd go try to cut a track and then he'd just try to walk down that track until he treed that line and he was successful on a couple of them um and I always thought that was kind of interesting, but it it's something I definitely want to do someday. I just got to make friends with the right guy, with the right dog, and, and uh, cut my legs loose on one of those adventures. But yeah, it sounds like fun. Like, man, you've had a great start to the year. Uh, just getting all that experience under your belt for, for January, like you're off and running and then big adventures for the spring and for the fall. Like you're doing, you're doing it right, Michael. Well, I'm definitely going to have to hit you up on info about the spring black bears. In fact, I think you did a you did a great spring black bear with uh is it Rich? Is yeah, Cody Rich. Is it Cody Rich? Oh, it's such a valuable episode. People should go listen to that um because you guys really cover some some of the basics as well. I mean, spring back black bear it looks really exciting. It looks really hard, but I'm looking forward to it and I'm going to be you know, kind of digging into uh, digging into those materials as well and trying to learn how to do it right. They're so fun. Like I say, for us archers, it's our entry level into dangerous game. Like it's hunting bears with a bow and arrow. And, um, you know, you definitely want to have like a, like a sidearm as well. Like I started, I, when I first started hunting them, I had this mentality that it was me versus the bears and it was me and my bow or, or nothing. I was so diehard archery, which I still am. I, I absolutely love archery, but um, I, I do know that when you hit these bears, like, like there's an oh shit moment that happens there, Michael. Like when you hit a bear, it's not quite like <laughs> shooting a deer and elk. Like when you hit a bear, it roars like a lion and it spins and bites at the mm. arrow. And like all of a sudden I wonder like, what did I just do? Like every time I shoot one of those <laughs> things because they just go nuts. And I've actually had like out of, you know, I probably killed eight, 10 bears, something like that with my bow. But I've had two of those bears charge me. And then I've also had buddies wow. with the similar situations with bears that charge them after they're hit. And, and one of the, let's see, 
actually both bears were an instance where they weren't trying to charge to kill me. They were trying to make a death run and get out of there because they had just been hit by that arrow. And the way the, the country filtered them, it filtered them in my direction or they happened to run in my direction. And one... I had chance, like it disappeared behind a green tree. I knocked another arrow, but I didn't hear him keep running. And I knew I'd put a good shot on him. And then seconds later, he's running up the hill, like at my position. He has no idea I'm there. And and I made the mistake, like, um, uh, you know, an elk, you cow call at. Ew. You know, a buck, you, you kind of grunt at. Meh. You know, to get them to stop, to get the shot or whatever. And so you kind of get these noises ingrained in your mind. Well, a bear, I huff at him, <laughs> you know, like that to kind of get them to stop. So when this bear is running at me, I huff at him like a bear and the huff did not make him happy. He then keyed into my position like you're the one who stung me, pinned his ears back and came right at me. And like I was barely oh. able to get my bow back and put another arrow in him. And and then the other situation was... um. So after that one, I started carrying my pistol. So I carry a 10, uh, 10 millimeter loaded with uh, 200 grain shells, and I've got 15 shells in there. And then uh, the, the other lesson I had to learn is I actually had to practice with that weapon to get better at it to build a shooting process like with my bow. But, yeah, the last one that charged me, I put a perfect arrow through his lungs. He was like 35 yards put a perfect arrow through his lungs, waited for the right shot, zipped him, but then he came running like right down at my position. And so I dropped my bow and I grabbed my pistol <laughs> and he's running at me and I'm shooting, but I'm just not looking at my sights. I'm just buzzing lead around him everywhere. And I finally ended up hitting him a couple times and dropping him and getting the deal done. It was, um, but that made, what a story. Oh my <laughs> gosh, dude. It was so thrilling. Um, but yeah, I, I shot at him 11 times it was either nine or 11 times and I hit him twice and grazed him once. So I did not do that great of shooting. So it made me like revisit my shooting process. I, I had like a Mike Glover. I've had him on the podcast and uh, he's yeah. a tactical guy. And so uh, I'd ask him about pistol shooting and process. And then I've taken these lessons these guys have taught me and I take it out on the range. So I'm, I'm completely comfortable with my pistol. But yeah, I remember when I first started shooting at that bear, I must have shot four or five times before I ever looked at my sight. I thought, oh, yeah, I got to look at my sight. I was just looking at the bear and just firing lead down range. And luckily, <laughs> I had an arrow through the bear's lungs, too, which really slowed him down. Uh, but I mean, that, stories like that put a different spin on target panic, right? Like when the target's trying to eat you. you know, oh, like my it gosh. Different it's a deal. different deal. So that's like the fun of hunting bear is there is that chance of that happening. It is dangerous game. And. You know, like I've read all the stories about hunting grizzly bears with my bow, but, you know, us, um, us blue collar guys, you know, like uh, we don't get a lot of chances at grizzly bear. They're big money hunts, but what we can do is we can hunt black bears every single year. And they're such a killer species. Like there's different colors of them. And then once you start to really hunt them and learn the species, like you start to learn what a big boar is and knowing that that big boar is eight, nine, 10 years old, or maybe even 12 or 13, they live way longer than deer and elk and takes way longer to get mature but once you see one of these, these these big bears just built with all this muscle and fat and every time they take a step their whole body shakes and and just watching these <laughs> bears and then getting close like the adrenaline level 
you know it's just like there's there there's a there's more that's relying upon the hunt and on your safety so when you're stalking these things like um man it's just so thrilling i just i love the stock on these things and then you have to make a precise shot their vitals are a third the size of a whitetail so you know i really try to get close to them 50 and under on bears and then try to make a precise shot on them but it is so thrilling man you're gonna have a blast I, I sure hope so. I just hope we get into some bears. That's my well, hope. Well, uh, bear hunting is 99% boredom and 1% thrilling excitement. So, like, you, you're just going for that 1% payoff. So there is a lot of time spent looking for them. But I think you have enough days, and you're going to put yourself in, in good spots. Like, you're going to turn up some bears and get some chances. Great. I, I hope that's true, and uh, and I'll uh, hit you up if we do. And I'll probably hit you up if we don't. <laughs> I'll just let you know how it goes. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, you'll like it. One, it, it just brings up, like, the, uh, you know, like we've talked about hunting those antelope and those stocks that you get. I, I think, um, you know, and with your hunting early that you've done in January, I think just putting yourself in bow range or those at-bats that you talk about, to me, it's like makes me more comfortable with being in bow range too. Like at the beginning of the year, whether my first hunt's an antelope or whether my first hunt's a, a mule deer, like like even like trying to stalk into range – like I'm just nervous. I'm filled with all this anticipation and anxiety and trying to get close. And like I almost like my legs aren't even steady. I'm trying to stalk and my my legs are shaky and I've just got all this adrenaline pulsing through me. And and it seems like the more I can get into bow range, the more stocks I make throughout the year, the more comfortable I get with being in bow range. And same thing with elk, like the first elk stock of the year, I'm always so hyped up. But by the fourth or fifth stock of the year, like I, I'm just in my zone then I'm just focused on the stock and the shot and I really hunt better that way and so those my point is is those antelope hunts the spring bear the January hunts like you you were doing like it just gets those at bats and those encounters those making plays that being into bow range which makes you more comfortable being in bow range which makes you better in the end so I I just think you're doing everything the right way Michael I I just um it's a really fun conversation to get you on the podcast and talk it over. Well, I appreciate it, Brian, and I've told you this a million times at this point, but I, I just hope you keep doing what you're doing um, with, with Eastman's Elevated and also just the articles in the Eastman's Bowhunting Journal. That's the one that I subscribe to and just benefits so much from from the education you're giving to all of us. So keep it up. Oh, thanks so much, man. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you. Let's, uh, let's keep in touch and, and good hunting for the rest of the year to you. Thanks, you too, Brian. All right, guys. That's the podcast. Again, just fun conversation with Michael. I, I really enjoyed connecting with him, and I enjoy that fresh perspective of, of new hunters and the challenges they face and clarifications they need. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I... I sometimes Eastman's Elevated is advanced tips and tactics, and so... Um, you know, sometimes I can speak uh, uh, over people's heads or it's just good to break these things down and explain them. So I, I think it's beneficial uh, from every experience level, from beginner to uh, the most experienced, you know. So uh, I really enjoy putting these things together. And thanks to Michael for taking the time. Uh, also, thanks to Eberly Stock for the support of the podcast and giving these these packs to me to give away uh, to both uh, the audience and my guests. 
so I, I, I gave one to Michael, and it's um, in the mail being sent to him now. So I'll touch bases with him after he gets it, but I really think this new Vapor series is going to be my go-to. I uh, really like the way the mainframe packs the weight, the hip belt, things of that nature. And, and then with these new Vapor Series packs, the 2,500, the 5,000, 7,500 cubic inch, I can just interchange those for you know whatever my needs are for that exact hunt. So super excited about those. Thanks again to Everly Stock. Thanks again to Cutter Stabilizers, my buddy Earl, uh, be, come, becoming a partner of Eastman's Elevated. Uh, so pumped to have them on board. I'm so pumped with this stabilizers, those carbon fiber stabilizers weighed out front. Uh, he's got a, a new sidebar bracket he's coming out with. I'm supposed to see it like in the next week or so. Uh, but everything he does, he, he does absolutely top of the line and, and puts everything into it. Um, so I'm, I'm pumped to see those brackets and, and really pumped to have them as a partner on the podcast. So if you're in the market for some new stabilizers, make sure to give them some love and give them a call and, and um, let's support uh, uh, Cutter Stabilizers. So, all right, that's a podcast. Man, so pumped for this, this bear season coming up. I've been putting together a couple of good episodes for that. And um, yeah, just uh, applying and getting my name and some hats around the West. I'm super excited to see some of these draw results come out and, and uh, start planning my adventures for this um, this this new year. Uh, going to be absolutely awesome. Man, I, uh, I know I'm pumped for it, and I know you guys are too. Uh, it's just some great adventures out there, and I can't wait to cut myself loose, but I, I'm going to be... I'm going to be a, a better version of myself. I'm going to be as absolutely prepared as I can be. And I, I've been following through with everything that I, that I've set forth, you know, all my goals that I've stated, my, um, my, my lifting, uh, my running, I'm just pushing my miles and pushing my elevation. I'm just capable of more. So I'm just squeezing in more time on these things. Uh, you know, even if it means missing a run a week or, uh, something of that nature, like just making these, these longer, uh, endurance runs with a lot of climbing in them. So that's been great working with that bow, like a madman. I got that, man, that new V3 is just shooting, man, do I love that thing. Uh, so yeah, I got that thing, um, behaving really well and just gonna continue to push my limits, make sure I shoot some of these 3d shoots, uh, uh, MAF were, um, their sponsor again this year. They're going to be, uh, coming on the podcast here shortly to talk about some of these 3d shoots and he has a bunch of events this year. So, uh, we'll make sure to, to give him some support. I'm going to make sure I shoot some of these as those mountain shoots are, are just so important to making sure I'm, I'm game time ready for hunting season. So, uh, next up is spring bear for me. Um, man, we're less than a month out now. Uh, so just getting my ducks in a row, uh, been fishing quite a bit, which I absolutely love. Make sure to check out my other fly fishing specific podcast. If you're into that, uh, Eastman's Flycast. been putting out some good episodes there and just did this, this giant trip with my buddy Dylan, where we, we went and stayed in the wall tent for three days and fished this new river with these really big flows and, and, and big rivers and big flows mean big fish, you know, and man, we just hit it right. Uh, we just crushed them. I caught my best fish of the year, um, caught a brown that stressed the tape at 24, and 
uh, really heavy and great fight. It was just a rodeo on the boat. And then um, Dylan saw uh, a couple good fish as well and, and just an awesome three days of just chasing these things from daylight to dark and, um, man, uh, throwing thousands of casts with the fly rod. But just so much fun to take advantage of our public waters and, and uh, some of the adventures that we can have. And springtime's a great time of year for it. So I'll be going hard for the next month or so until um, bear season kicks off and then try to mix in a few days. I'm actually going to go throw um, big dry flies, big squalas on the um, uh, a western side of the state on a brand new river this weekend. So super excited for that. Uh, great big dry fly and big brown trout and um, pretty fun stuff. So uh, make sure to check out that other podcast and everything we have going on over there at Eastman's. Uh, the magazines I've been writing a ton in. I've got actually two articles coming up in the next bow hunting journal, or maybe it's two bow hunting journals out. I, I can't remember exactly, but two articles um, that I have coming out in the same issue uh, that I'm super excited about. Uh, extreme backpacking. Um, and then also I have one, um, let's see, extreme backpack. Well, oh, uh, uh, right now the present, like, um, you know, what I'm working on and what my journey is for self-improvement and, uh, what everybody else can be working on. And that writing's just such a fun format. Um, so I really enjoy it and, um, I really enjoy the spreads that, that Eastman's puts together for me, you know, photos and, and, um, yeah, just the, the entire deal. It's, um. God, what a what a dream, you know. I I used to run to my mailbox to get Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal and to read it uh, through every page, and I I still get excited to see him in the mailbox. But to be a permanent staple of that magazine and be able to write uh, these articles about next level bow hunting has just been a dream for me. And so, um, I I, I just uh, just so fortunate to to be able to to have that spot or that place. Um, to be able to talk to guys. And so, uh, anyways, that's a podcast. That's a wrap. Um, man, keep working hard towards your dreams. Uh, hunting season's going to be here before we know it. Keep getting those miles in, shooting those arrows. Man, it all makes a difference when season gets here. And um, I really appreciate you guys and uh, the support of the podcast. It's just been a, an amazing journey for me and just feels like a dream world, this life that I've created, to be able to, to hunt so much and share my journey with you guys and have these interesting conversations with other like-minded hunters. And um, it's just been an amazing journey for me. So I'm so grateful for 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 everything so grateful for you guys so uh thanks a bunch i really appreciate it and with that we'll check in with you guys next week